university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the deconstruction workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the deconstruction workers podcast. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. And today on the line, returning to us after our pretty fantastic Christmas episode last year, is Dr. Dan oh, Yesbick. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, indeed. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Dan Yesbick. Dan teaches in English and Communication at Wildwood College, which is in Missouri. Yep. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Thank you so much, Chris. It's wonderful to be here. Awesome. So today we're going to get you out of the Christmas time slot <laughs> and and into what we always do on this show, which is deconstructing some pretty significant popular culture here. We're going to talk today about Black Mirror. The Sounds British, wonderful. The British Netflix television show Black Mirror, but more largely about the impact of technology on us as a society from a popular culture kind of a perspective. Sounds glorious. It sounds kind of like a Christmas gift I wish I had. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm not sure everyone is familiar with Black Mirror. So mm -hmm. I thought what we'd start with is just kind of going over what the show is and what its aims are, what it's trying to do. <laughs> well, I'll give you my bit and then you throw in and we'll see where we go. Black Mirror is kind of three fascinating things at once for me. First of all, it's kind of a Cinderella story because Charlie Brooker, the showrunner, was pretty much the poster child for complete disaster. <laughs> it was just a lot of the things that get us all down and depressed and worried about the state of culture were sort of weighing on him in a really nasty personal way. Uh, he was kind of locked on his couch, sort of culturally depressed by the way that media has sort of reaches for the lowest common denominator. Uh, he was having relationship problems. He was having a lot of personal and professional issues. Uh, and he just couldn't really find a, a vein or an avenue or a place to put this kind of satiric vitriol that he had deep inside. He'd worked on some comic strips and he'd worked on some blog stuff, but uh, eventually because of his, his success with his sort of satire blog that was aimed mostly at British television, he caught the attention of the BBC and uh, Black Mirror was kind of the result. So that's the first thing Black Mirror is. It's, it's kind of like this outsider Rod Serling who just has all these nasty views on how things we take for granted are ruining us and finds a place to put them. So that's really interesting. The second thing is that it's, it's a TV show that works along the British model where they do very short seasons or even just a series of specials. Uh, so they don't have the long American 30-episode seasons or 12-episode seasons. They just sort of tinker at them until they're right where they want them, and then they really sort of lovingly sculpt them and then release them. And that's interesting because that then got bought up by Netflix, which transformed the show. And in some cases, you have several episodes per season. In some cases, you only have three. So it really varies according to how the tinkering is going. And that's really uh, sort of unique and new in the world of television. And thirdly, the, the title itself, it really is a very, very dark reflection of the way that technology and convenience and instantaneous information transfer has either plagued or dehumanized or altered a lot of the ways that we wish we could be. It certainly shows the worst of us when we think that we're being respectful or responsible or loving or considerate, and it pulls away at these sort of veils of hypocrisy and confusion and perversity uh, that we all kind of need to be aware of. And luckily for us, it can be terrifying, but can also be really funny at times. <laughs> True. So there's a couple of things in here that I kind of want to unpack before we get started. The first of sure. which is you invoked... And in my own popular culture consciousness, it really is an invocation yes. of a television deity, really. Right. In that you invoked Rod Serling, who, yes. for me, was light years ahead of his time. Oh, so much so, yes. <laughs> and had a very interesting path 
to fame and stardom. Mm -hmm. Here's a guy who starts off, he enlists in the U.S. Army during World War II. He Mm -hmm. goes to try to fight the Nazis. He's a paratrooper. He gets injured in the Philippines. He gets a purple heart. He gets sent home. He doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. His father dies right when he gets home Mm -hmm. from the war. And he ends up working in radio in the late 1940s when he comes back. So Rod Serling is really there on the technological cusp of a new era, mm-hmm. which has a very distinct parallel, I think, to a lot of what Black Mirror is trying to do. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Living at this transition point of technological advancement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's very true. And I also think I'm really glad that was maybe the best short biography of Rod Serling I've ever heard. So thank you for that. That was spectacular. We are always so quick to forget about how seminal and foundational those early radio dramas were to the way we now look at media satire, the way we now look at both humor and horror and the the way they've worked their way through American culture and now through international media. Because you've got people like Rod Serling and Arch Obler and Wells is doing it, Orson Wells is doing it a little bit earlier. Several other writers at the time, including several women, are uh, actually really writing these really sharp, some of them are funny uh, satire, some of them are ghost stories, some of them are science fiction tales. So really, really uh, interesting stuff coming out of that. And Serling sort of, I think he finds his people there. I really do. I think that's where he gets the idea that he can tell these stories and find a small sort of cultish audience. Those late night thrillers were not for everybody, but that's where he sort of grows. And of course, at that time, everyone is scrambling from radio to TV to try to make the jump. And TV offers Serling this stage that I don't think anyone could have dreamed of, very much like Charlie Brooker in Black Mirror. And you're right, you're right. It's the transition from one mass medium to another that allows us to really look back and see how media altered so many of the ways that we behave traditionally, both for good and for bad. Rod Serling doesn't necessarily invent the genre he ends up defining no but he absolutely ends up defining that genre absolutely which is the anthology series most television series up until that point were what we might Mm -hmm. consider today episodic that is they tell Mm -hmm. one story but they tell it in chapters whether that's soap opera style where something like the young and the restless has been telling the exact same story since the 1970s or like any modern show today, pick one where every week, you know, this is us or something like that, where every week we get a chapter of this story that continues uh-huh. to slowly advance forward. Right. An anthology series doesn't do that. An anthology series is a series in which every week there's a brand new story beginning to end. Um, so you can right. think of it as the difference between like a novel and a group of short stories, right? I mean, every, Correct. every short story is a new story. And there have been anthology series before the twilight zone but once the twilight zone gets its start it basically becomes its own genre of shows (laughs) then later trying to replicate not anthology series but literally trying to replicate the twilight zone whether that's you know rod Sterling himself with something like night gallery or tales from the crypt or tales Tales from the the dark dark side Even something like Amazing Stories. Or even at the same time, you've got Alfred Hitchcock Presents doing the same thing. It's another anthology series. Exactly. So Rod Serling and Alfred Hitchcock both become these sort of mastheads, these auteur icons for these kinds of stories so they can market themselves so well as kind of this ghoulish character, this MC for this uh, this master of ceremonies for these stories that are most importantly they're meant to entertain. They're meant to thrill or shock or bring out laughter and humor, but it's the underlying unnerving argument about what's going on that's really, really interesting. We also have to say, again, that a lot of it also comes from those early pulp anthologies, too, because uh, you know Hitchcock's pulling from there. Uh, Rod Serling, is, he's doing most of the writing and directing himself, of course, in some cases, but he's still pulling stories and concepts from various genres, from the Western, from science fiction, right, from war. His war stories are fantastic, yeah. There's lots of genre work going on, which is the fun of an anthology show. You can be in prehistoric times one week, and you can be in outer space the next. The second piece of this that I want to unpack is that Black Mirror is also a direct descendant of Twilight Zone, even more so than something like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm -hmm. Rod Serling is not trafficking in horror he's not trafficking in terror right 
Rod Serling is trafficking in anxiety. Tension. Which is a whole different feeling right. inside your body. Right. It's, it is tension. It's a whole different ballgame. And I think Black Mirror does that so well. When I watch episodes yes. of Black Mirror, I don't feel scared. I don't feel necessarily even thrilled. I feel nervous the whole time. I feel this anxious right. tension the whole time I'm watching it of not knowing what's going to happen next and knowing whatever it is is not going to be good. <laughs> It's mm -hmm. going to be awful. Mm -hmm. One of my students really described that well recently. Because at the same time, certainly in the Twilight Zone and in almost every episode of Black Mirror that I can think of, there's this tension, this nervousness, this kind of Hitchcockian suspense going on where you're at the edge of your seat. You're, you're on the razor's edge. It's very, very sharply scripted. But you're also using your brain at the same time because you're judging. You're ethically asking yourself questions. So it's sort of a two-story assault on your consciousness. One, you're vicariously living through the story, wondering what's going to happen next. And the other, you're always asking, is this okay? Is this a good idea? What are the larger personal and social and cultural and family repercussions of all this happening? So you're, you're nervous on two very different levels, on a personal level and an ethical level. My student said, it's like your brain is being brutalized two different ways. Right. And it's fun. A, there's a kind of a roller coaster feel to it. You like being in that. I mean, it's called the Twilight Zone because it's weird. There's a weirdness to it. There's a funhouse feeling to it that is so very, very enjoyable. The thing that I find so interesting is that my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. You know, because Twilight Zone tries to do a lot of different things. It's interesting that you bring up this question of ethical questioning the whole time you're watching it. Because mm -hmm. for me, those are the most interesting Twilight Zone episodes as well. Sure. Are the ones where it's not just anxiety, but that I'm having to question what I think about the world. Mm -hmm. as I'm watching it. For example, one of my favorite episodes is from the second season of Twilight Zone, and it's called The Obsolete Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one that not a lot of people have seen. We remember the big ones. We remember Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Right. We remember It's a Good Life, you know, the little boy wishing people into the cornfield. We remember Eye of the Beholder, the one where the woman is having plastic surgery, and then at the end of the episode, she's the only normal right, one. Right, Everyone yeah. else has pig faces. We remember right. those. But these smaller ones, for me, are more poignant. They're more thought-provoking. You know, in The Obsolete Man, it's about... It's got Burgess Meredith in it, which Burgess Meredith was in everything. Mickey from Rocky. <laughs> For those of you who don't know who Burgess Meredith is, he was Mick in Rocky. He also has that perfect face for that episode, too, because he's kind of like the slightly older yes. everyman kind of figure. He always plays kind of a nerdy little bookworm kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And and that's not the only episode of The Twilight Zone that picks no. bookworms, either. We have a lot of that going He's actually on. in two <laughs> episodes specifically about bookworm people. There's the one where he's the bank teller, time enough at last. He gets caught in the vault during the nuclear explosion, right. and then he comes out. He's got all the time to read, right. and then, and then he breaks break. his glasses. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's the, the classic Burgess Meredith one. But the, in The Obsolete Man, he, in the future, he is a librarian. And being a librarian is punishable by death because the state has eliminated books, and he also believes in God, and the state has eliminated that. He gets caught hoarding books you're not supposed to have books mm -hmm. and he hoards the books and then he right. gets put on trial for being the kind of person who imagines rather than does and it's this big thing mm -hmm. to the state and whatever and he is sentenced to death and at the end of it he ends up turning the tables on the guy from the state and he ends up being the obsolete man Right. So mm -hmm. society doesn't need him anymore. And it really is this exploration of what does it mean to contribute to society? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. what, what, what do we consider a societal contribution? And it's really poignant and it's very thought provoking. And it's not just, ooh, I feel scared for an hour and now I'm done. There's also, uh, not in every episode of The Spotlight Zone, but certainly in, in a lot of them, there's also this sense of this personal responsibility to educate yourself, to be aware, right? He loves books even though they've been banished. He loves books even though the, you know, the state isn't happy about it. Uh, and we certainly see that same kind of concern over anti intellectualism in various episodes of Black Mirror. Right. It's, it's fun, but there's work involved too. And as a human being, you're kind of responsible for this. That certainly works in both of those those episodes of Twilight Zone, for sure. The third interesting thing that I kind of want to unpack 
this may take us, you know, a goodly portion of the rest of this episode, but sure. um, is the way in which Black Mirror, Twilight Zone certainly in the 1950s and 60s, but Black Mirror definitely in the 2000s here, the way that mm-hmm. that show is prescient about things that are either happening or very soon going to happen. I'm thinking specifically of one of the episodes from the third season. It's called Nosedive. Oh, yeah. It's the first episode in the third season, which has to do with social media and people being able to give you a rating. And what's going on in China right now, where they're actually implementing it, what is seen Mm -hmm. as sort of a dystopian fable about what's wrong with society is actually being implemented by the Chinese government in China right now as a matter of public policy. There is that, Mm -hmm. but also advancements in virtual reality and artificial intelligence and the ways in which Mm -hmm. we can escape into these alternate worlds and who gets to control those. Or how the alternate worlds define us, like hang the DJ, right? (laughs) Just a little more torture and you'll meet your soulmate, you know? (laughs) Or or striking vipers in which I live this whole second life. Yes. Or my very absolute favorite episode, not just of Black Mirror, but maybe of any (laughs) anthology series in the past, I don't know, 15 years, maybe, which is USS Callahan, Uh which is an amazing, amazing episode. Of television. HSS Callister. Callister, right? yeah, talking about? sorry. Yeah, oh God, yes. And that's what I think also, I mean, this is taking us a little off topic, but I think it's useful. Black Mirror is so, so bitter that its flavor is not for it all is not. And I've had a lot of, yeah, and I've had a lot of people tell me, people who love media and who, who love even anthology series, big Twilight Zone fans, they're like, I watched the first Black Mirror and I can't go back. And that first one is yeah. intense. It is incredibly rough on the soul and uh, the citizen and uh, the psyche. <laughs> so it really doesn't pull a single punch. No. It's it's beautifully done, but it is, it is raw. It, it seems to me Black Mirror makes even more of an impact, especially with an episode like HSS Callister. If it just dulls the point of the blade just a little bit, it makes it a little bit ridiculous or a little bit funny. So Striking Viper certainly looks at that rating thing, certainly looks at the the way late night gaming can mess you up. Nosedive does the same thing. And that wonderful parody of Star Trek has so much to tell us. I think you're right. I think it's one of the greatest single episodes of television in media history. There's no question. Because it's so enjoyably seductive. Yeah, it's dealing with all of these very, very pressing issues. The other one I think is like that, although it's not quite as good, is Where's Waldo? The Waldo moment. With the crazy cartoon blue bear. Yeah, that one's also... It's just silly enough that you can stick with it, but then it has such a such a dark turn. Uh, the only one, very, very much like the HSS Callister, only one person in that world really knows what's wrong with what's going on. And in the HSS Callister, it turns out to be great, uh, but I won't give it anything away. And then the big blue bear certainly doesn't. <laughs> Back to an earlier point, I will say my wife yeah. made it through exactly three episodes of Black Mirror. And then was done with it. Starting with and the first I, one? Uh, no, because we watched them accidentally out of order because we didn't okay. know. Okay, so, well, that's probably good. So when we started Black Mirror, we actually started with the first episode in the third season, you know, Nosedive. This Bryce Dallas Howard episode about social media. That's the very first one we had ever right. watched because we just had started with whatever right. was current. So we kind of watched mm-hmm. them backwards. So we watched that one. Then we watched the one where the woman builds the AI of her dead husband. <laughs> that one's yes. really rough. Yes. And she was like, I don't I don't know about this. And then we watched the one where everyone in the town is hunting that woman. Oh, yeah. And then we find out why at the end of the episode, and my wife was done. She was like, I'm not watching this anymore. White Bear. (laughs) That is one of my favorite ones because it just tears theme parks apart, and that makes me so happy. I coerced her back to watch HMS Callister, which she was ambivalent towards, but Uh basically at the end of that was like, just so you know, I'm done with this show. I'm not doing this again. (laughs) So, right. 
and I've heard that from many, many people, and I don't blame them at all. There are some episodes that I think, whoa, you really didn't, we didn't really have to go to this particular right. place in this story. And then there are some that I think I never would have seen this coming, and I love every bit of it, and some of them believe me miserable and wretched. And we just did a St. Louis Science Center First Friday celebration of Black Mirror, which is one of the things that brought this together. And there were three or four of us talking, and we all told a lot of people in the audience hadn't seen a lot of episodes yet. We said, whatever you do, do not binge watch this show. No. It is not a good idea. <laughs> you really need time. You need you need some time to yourself because it is a long-term, complicated relationship. You have to watch one and walk away. That's right. And there are some that are better than others, obviously. Oh, oh yes, yes. And that's always what plagues any anthology show, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the ones that I like are not always the ones everyone else likes. Oh, sure. I actually really liked the Miley Cyrus episode, which a lot of people talk a lot of trash about. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful. I thought it was really, really good. For an artist, a celebrity, a musician, whatever she is, someone who is that aware of her celebrity image to play that kind of part and make those kinds of statements about the way media work. I thought it was a fabulous episode. I thought that was really, really great. Mm -hmm. The two that seem to get the most attention seem to be the USS Callister for obvious reasons, and we'll get into it in a second, I think. And then the one that won all the awards, San Junipero, which is really, really seductive and tempting in so many different ways. And also, I think, one of the healthiest episodes. You can read it as a happy ending if you must. And those two are also the ones that deal the most with ideas of nostalgia, with ideas of fandom, with ideas of identity being represented through sort of market trends and fashions and music and eras and things like that. The one, though, that weirdly is emblematic of Black Mirror for me, the one mm -hmm. that I keep coming yeah. back to, I have seen... HMS Callister probably five or six times. It's the only uh -huh. other one that I've ever watched twice. Uh -huh. And that is the episode called The Entire History of You. It's from yeah. the first season. <laughs> and it's where essentially the central conceit of the episode is that you have a device in your eyeball that mm -hmm. lets you right. record everything you see. It lets mm -hmm. you record mm -hmm. all your memories. And this guy ends up kind of hacking his wife's memories and then realizes he probably shouldn't have done that. And it's really, mm -hmm. really interesting about the nature of information transfer, about wanting to know versus needing to know. And the like. it's mm -hmm. got so many mm -hmm. just interesting moral and ethical questions to it. And it's not one we talk about a lot, but it's I think it's one of the better ones. Yeah, well, I actually think it's the best one in the first season, honestly. I think it's it brings up so many ethical questions about, again, very much like the Twilight Zone moving post-war from, from radio to TV and catching this moment of transition from World War II to Cold War, from industry to luxury. We have that same thing happening here because in episodes like The Entire History of You or the one that I think even amps it further, which is Archangel, where you have a child who is given a camera in her head forever and of course, the mom uses it to keep the child safe. But then when the child is becoming a teenager, she still uses her to spy on the, on the child all the time. And mom sees things mom should never see. Uh, and, and, and she's even warned at the beginning. There are family members who tell her, like, is this really a good idea? Well, we want to keep her safe. So that idea of retaining memories, that idea of archiving, the idea of surveillance, the idea of it is very feasible. There are probably people out there right now who are either personally or privately having everything they do somehow digitally archived and recorded. And that is a very concerning thing <laughs> in so many ways. Right. And when Black Mirror is at its best edge, I think, it feels a lot like the way urban legends work because they're very, very critical. And people like to see that they're very, very liberally critical in the way they're sort of talking about personal freedom and individual rights. But they're also incredibly conservative and reactionary in the way they're saying, well, things were simpler and easier and the laws and the rules were still much clearer beforehand. So before we invented this really cool nifty hack where you can record every single thing you ever experienced, we, we didn't have the problems that this now creates. So there's there's those wonderful questions that are being asked. And that's what makes the show both brutal in terms of suspense and brutal in terms of brain power. So let's pause here. Let's take a break. Sure. We'll come back in two and two, and then we'll really get our fingers into this. So stick around. We'll be right back. Thanks for taking a very quick break from the Deconstruction Workers podcast. I just wanted to remind you that recently we launched our brand spanking new Instagram page. 
So you can follow us on Instagram for pop culture trivia and for new episodes and for discussion about each episode. Join in and talk about what you've heard and what you think and we'll interact with you in that way. The Instagram page is really going to be the way that the Deconstruction Workers podcast workers are going to be able to interact with you, the fans. So follow us at deconstruction workers thanks and now back to the show and we're back we had talked earlier off the air about which episodes of black mirror we really wanted to get our fingers into and i think both of us if you dear listener haven't already noticed i think both of us have sort of gravitated towards this episode called i just checked and the name is uss callister so we'll take it from there yeah so just so we both don't get a lot of email well, like, I, thought I, I think i started off calling it <laughs> uss callahan yeah right right yeah, the no. official <laughs> title is uss callister right it is an episode that first aired at the end of 2017 it is season four episode one it stars Kristen Milioti Kristen Milioti Mm -hmm. is a tragically underrated actress who absolutely true so true most people probably know her as the mother in How I Met Your Mother. She is the ultimate MacGuffin of the series. We don't we don't meet <laughs> yes. her until the last season, and then in what is widely regarded as one of the worst final seasons of any television show in American television history, <laughs> they proceed to remind us that she's the only likable person in the entire cast for an entire season. <laughs> That sounds fair. <laughs> She's the only person on that show who's not completely mental. Something we have a separate episode coming up for the, <laughs> yeah. for the deconstruction oh, work. Oh, trust me. There's, there's probably an episode somewhere amongst us of what happens when you take a good television show and turn it into a television show. Uh, that's terrible. Right, and right. we could talk about How I Met Your Mother and Lost. And are there, we, right. there's a whole list right. that we could make. Yeah, boy, there are still people who will never, ever forgive Lost. No. As well, they should not. J.J. Abrams will wear that albatross for the rest of his life. <laughs> I think so. There are not a lot of people in this episode that you would recognize. Kristen Milioti is definitely the only real big name in this episode. She is definitely the most recognizable person in the... To be honest, she steals every frame she's in. She really does. She's just... She takes over that episode in the best of ways from the moment she arrives. The episode itself essentially revolves around two clashing concepts. The first is that they are all game designers. They design this video game that is very much World of Warcraft immersive technology kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Kristen Milioti's character is a new computer programmer. She shows up. The person who designed the game completely, I think his name is Robert. Mm -hmm. Robert designs this game, but he has a completely different set of all of the parts of the game on a private server in his house. He has basically a virtual world in which he is God. He is the only person in charge. He has also managed to perfect a web tech thing where he is taking DNA from his coworkers and then enslaving their avatars in the game where he's doing terrible things to them. Right. Because he's, he's a sick, demented, sadistic dictator. Right. So in the regular game world... People can plug in their DNA, so to speak, in order to create a virtual version of themselves in the game. Mm -hmm. At home, he is using that technology. He basically steals pieces of DNA from everyone in the office, like a used coffee cup or a soda can or something. He steals these things and he uses them to create replicas of those people in his virtual world that he has privately at home. The private world that he has at home is basically a replica of the first season of Star Trek. It's a very (laughs) 1960s mini skirts and very sanitized version of the world in which he is the greatest character in the universe. He is the captain of the ship and everyone loves him and everyone does exactly what he says all the time. And then when he logs out, we get to see what happens to all of those virtual people who live in his world. I've always thought this episode is such an incredible autopsy of 
fandom to me because yes. fandom is so much based on nostalgia and ownership and possession and proving your fandom and all this stuff. There's so many different kinds of fandoms, but this is sort of an indictment of bad fandom because his whole office is like a shrine to the show, or I think they call it Space Fleet. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and he, he doesn't only just have every episode, which is what a fan would have. He's got every episode in every single format, the VHS and beta and DVD and Blu-ray. And he has them all just lined up there. And you can tell there's something obsessive and unhealthy and kind of greedy and raw about the way he treats his fandom. And he admits that the, his fandom for this show is what uh, inspired him to help develop this game. And that's all fine. Like you, You're free to get into whatever you want to get into unless you're not hurting other people. And that's the difference is that even if he took these samples, these genetic samples, which he does his co-workers and brought them into the game even that is creepy and it's kind of kinky and fetishy and cruel but it's the fact that they know the avatars know that they are slaves to his will that's where it starts to get right. really really uncomfortable and it's really a, i mean to be a fan is a wonderful thing it's very creative it's very engaging you have these communities and discourses that you contribute to where you're speaking these languages through different kinds of ideas of fandom and star trek is probably the archetypical example of that but this is bad fandom because he's enslaved to the continuity and he's enslaved other people to the continuity he's not willing to accept any kind of agency within the fandom he's such a dictator and he enjoys hurting people who mess with his very clean and proper and continuous and unalterable view uh, and very sexless which is one of the best jokes in the episode about how this fandom should be right it must be cold and dead and stolid there has to be allegiance more than there has to be enjoyment although it's weird because on the one hand in the episode this universe is portrayed as kind of sexless yeah oh yeah <laughs> but on the other hand it's really not Mm -hmm. It's portrayed as every man in this universe wants to be him and every woman in this universe wants him. They're forced to play that role. And when they don't, he punishes them. That part of it is so much about him being in control because clearly he has social issues at work. Like he's the boss, but he's not getting a lot of respect. He's kind of creeped everybody out at one point or another. His partner and the company is very rude and cruel to him. So he goes home and takes that out on, on these avatars that he's created and what he does to that guy in the game is horrible. He seems to have a special joy about hurting people of color who could have disobey his white patriarchy. He does terrible things to them. And they all know that they have to play these roles. They don't have any choice. It seems to be more, many games are like this, not just video games. It seems to be so much where he's missed the point of the fantasy, the fun and the joy and the collaborative avant-garde and innovative things and forward thinking that made Star Trek great. And he's just into sitting in that chair and being an absolute dictator. There's this very weird racist undertone you pointed that out a little bit there but there is absolutely not just this very sexist and that's not even an undertone that's an overtone <laughs> yeah it's very clear this very clear sexist relationship happening in his private world but also this very weirdly racist vibe about what he's doing and about who has power in that alternate universe yes. and who doesn't. Yeah, it seems to think the thing about Space Fleet that really inspired him as a child is that no one questions the white captain. No matter what this white guy calls the shots, that gives him all kinds of great feelings. That's why that's why he is so unhealthily adheres to this game. He can't really function without he can't do anything else. He can't have a healthy relationship. There's in the early in the episode, you don't quite know what's going on yet, but he's going up to one of his coworkers who tries to be nice to him. And the guy is ordering coffee for people and he's asking if he can have one. And he, all he does is ask for a coffee. And the coworker, who I believe is a person of color, he's just terrified that he's even been asked to make coffee. He knows there's something weird going on. Then enter into this whole setup, our hero of the story, who is Kristen Milioti. He gets a hold of her DNA and her avatar within the game has all of her personality because it's from her DNA and she refuses to play along and it becomes increasingly problematic for him in ways that I can't really talk about without spoiling the episode. Right. Sure. It is really just this brilliant, brilliant commentary on fandom and nostalgia 
on toxic white male privilege. Exactly right. Yes. The masterful part of it for me is that Kristen Milioti, how am I going to put this gently? Kristen Milioti is really, really attractive. (laughs) And the entire episode is played to kind of make you feel bad for noticing that. Well, yes, I can see that. Yeah. There's this undertone of the episode of the fact that she looks the way that she looks is why this dude thinks he can do what he's doing. And therefore, by proxy, you as a fan should also kind of vaguely feel bad for whatever (laughs) you're thinking about her right now. (laughs) One more time, Brooker is making us so focused on our own role and our own interactivity, our own mediation of these entertainments. Yeah, there's because she is. I mean, like I said, she dominates every scene she's in. She's incredibly attractive. She's an incredibly powerful, feminine, professional presence. And she even plays the fan in the first part of the episode. She goes fawning up to him, saying that this game was the one that got her to want to be like this, wanted to be this kind of professional. But she's so much stronger than almost anybody else in both worlds. And a lot of that has to do with her sexual appeal, which then turns out to be the thing that allows them to do what they need to do. I won't give it away. We often say, oh, this is brilliant on so many levels. And then you're like, well, what levels? But this is actually brilliant on multiple levels, multiple definable levels. And just, again, this is one of the ones that you can pretty much say, you can read the ending as more positive than most episodes of Black Mirror. It has the closest thing to a happy ending I think we've seen in this show. Yeah, exactly. That ending, I won't give it away, but what ultimately happens is it really shows you all the positives of being an active participant in some kind of fandom, right? They find uh, various characters find new and empowering ways of living, new and empowering identities, new and empowering bodies that completely transform them and allow for an infinite possibility of explorations into worlds that no one's seen before. And they don't hesitate. They jump right on and they're all collaborating and woohoo, things are going to be, I don't know if things are going to be great, but they're certainly going to be better Better than than before because we're not stuck in a TV show that's 40 years out of date, right? So there's, there's lots of interesting human and media surprises as the show continues. It is brilliant scripting, brilliant production design, wonderful editing, powerful acting. It's everything you want in a single episode of television. When we talk about, when I talk about yeah. <laughs> the Twilight Zone, because I do at uh-huh. great length all the time to anyone who will listen. Same here, so you can say we. <laughs> you know, when, when yeah. we talk about the Twilight Zone in these sort of reverential terms, this episode of Black Mirror certainly ranks among that discussion. I mean, I can go back to episodes of every one of these anthology series and say, this is the episode that defines the series. And this is the episode that really mm-hmm. it was kind of life changing in terms of the of my thought processes or the ways in which I think about particular things within society. Right. The one Twilight Zone that really is the thing for me is the kick the can episode. Oh yeah. Oh wow. The kick the can episode is everything twilight zone ever was trying to do in one place where there's just these old people and they're in an old folks home. And there's this one guy who's just miserable about growing old and he's mad and he's terrible. And then another old guy comes and he's like, Hey, tonight at midnight, we're going to play kick the can. And the old guy's like, we're not allowed to go outside and we're old and just be old and stop getting everyone all riled up. And then he doesn't go outside at midnight and everyone else does. Uh And then he looks out the window and they're all kids. Um, All the old people have turned into kids. And then there's that really heart-wrenching shot at the end where he's like, take me with you, take me with you. And they Mm -hmm. all are young Mm -hmm. again and run away, right? That's right. That that really fundamentally transformed the way that I think about aging and and getting older and you know all this stuff. I mm-hmm. it's always in the, although my version of that episode actually the one that lives in my brain is from Twilight Zone the movie. Which uh-huh, is, yes, it's, it's the exact same episode except the old man in that is Scatman Crothers. Mm-hmm. Scatman Crothers is all the things. <laughs> He's so emblematic of so many things that I love and respect about popular culture. And we haven't even mentioned that we have this wonderful new version of The Twilight Zone, too. Right. It's really 
which is which is playing with the same kind of ideas that Black Mirror has been playing with. The two episodes that always stick with me are also sort of minor ones, and I think they're more horror based, which is why I'm more inclined to see the Twilight Zone as a horror based show. But uh, you're right, it is more weird and suspenseful. The one that I remember watching with my father that gave me nightmares for years is the Howling Man, where the guy has been locked up in the basement of the monastery. Yes. Because I, I remember thinking, what would I do if this were me? Which is exactly what the episode is making young kids do at the time. And they tell the everyman character, we have the devil locked up in the basement. Don't ever let him out. You can talk to him. You can do whatever. Don't ever let him out. And of course, the guy is incredibly sympathetic. And the main character just believes that these people are crazy. And they ultimately let him out. And then you see the cloven hoof right going up the stairs. And you think, oh, my God, what have I done? And the other one that works that way for me is the Purple Testament. I don't know if you know that one or not about the soldier who can see death. Oh, yeah. That one also. Because both of those episodes hinge on this idea of responsibility, of individual personal responsibility. And those two, I'm surprised I kept watching it as a kid because those two messed me up but good forever, Uh, you know? (laughs) The only thing I distinctly remember, it's such a burned into my brain memory of The Howling Man, Mm -hmm. is at the very end is Rod Serling going, you can catch the devil, but you can't hold him. And I'm like, oh! Yes, that's exactly it. You're like, oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes. So haunting. That definitely defined a lot of my behaviors as a child, those two episodes. So. Right. <laughs> I think that's so interesting that we come at the show from two completely different directions. Because for yeah. me, it is not just, there is that one, the Kick the Can episode. Mm-hmm. That's uh-huh. the big one for me. But then the other one that really is my, the way that I think about the Twilight Zone is the silence. It's the one where the dude won't stop talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. His friends bet him $500,000 that he can't go a year without saying Uh anything. And he lives in this glass apartment with the microphones so that they know if he's going to talk. And then he makes it the whole year. And then at the end of the episode, you find out that it's because he cut his vocal cords and he can't talk. Really? I mean, we keep saying this, but Sterling was so much ahead of his time, especially in terms of ethics. There's the one where the guy's been imprisoned on the planet and they oh, give, they the give him the AI. Sex bot. Yeah, the sex bot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, that's more of a torture than anything he's ever had before, before it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the, the way that we now have these virtual selves, these simulacral selves, these, these cybernetic selves, is some variation of that Twilight Zone seed just feeds directly into Black Mirror and really worries us. And while you were talking, I was thinking also, if we go back to USS Callister, I officially said it correctly once, right? <laughs> the way that Star Trek has become such a widely operating demanding fandom is also a huge part of that episode because how many Star Treks are there? I mean, it goes on forever. And how many parodies of Star Treks are there with Galaxy Quest and whatever the new one is? What is it? Uh, The Orville. Yeah, right, right. That one. The Seth MacFarlane. Yes, or even the other media that celebrate Star Trek's outdatedness and cheesiness and modishness as opposed to how forward-thinking it was. There's so many ways that are progressive and creative and moving forward with Star Trek, but this dude who invents the game that everyone plays that makes him rich and powerful, he's more about the things that Kirk hated, right? right? He's more about the rules and about conforming to the rules. He's got There's something deeply, deeply wrong with his Star Trek code that makes it really interesting. When you have so many other healthy, fun, alt Star Treks out there to play with. Even in these new ones, because uh-huh. we haven't really given enough credit to the new ones, Jordan Peele of Key and Peele, right, right, Jordan right, Peele right, right. becomes the the new Rod Serling in these new Twilight Zones that are yes, on yes. air right now. And I have not watched all of them, but I did watch the first few of them. And I will say that they're really well done. They're really well done. They are. I haven't seen them all yet either, and I should. I should have done so, but, you know, we all make mistakes. <laughs> and he really is kind of a, a new 21st century multicultural Rod Sterling. Right. His films are always working in that same vein. Like us, uh, Get Out. I mean, he's really pulling on those same strings. These kinds of anthology series, these kinds of explorations in technology and anxiety, in storytelling that has moral and ethical implications that Mm -hmm. go beyond sort of the mundane kinds of things you might get in a scary movie. Right. They're doing interesting cultural work in a way that most of our popular culture just doesn't do. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting that Jordan Peele 
and Charlie Brooker and Rod Sterling to a certain extent, they all start with comedy. Yes. To be a good comedian, whether you're doing stand-up or you're doing sitcoms or you're doing comic book satire or whatever you're doing, it's got to be tight. The narratives have to be so tight. It's almost like tension is a prereq for telling a good joke or making good, sharp comedy, especially satire. So it's probably easier for them and maybe kind of a relief for them to not have to get you to laugh as much as to get you to go, oh, man, right? To pull you in that way. So humor and horror are such a tight, close, close connection in so many ways. There's a very fine line between being amused and being terrified. That, right, right. That's why we go to haunted houses and we walk around and we scream because we think we're going to die. And then we don't die. And right. that's funny. That's exactly right. Laugh to release the tension. They are very closely related. Comedy is kind of a, the best comedy is a kind of a shield or a defense against the things we fear, death and humiliation and pain. Horror means we're observing vicariously or virtually somebody else going through those terrible experiences. Right. right? So they're very, very closely connected. It is very much a better you than me kind of a situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, very rarely in episodes of The Twilight Zone or in Black Mirror, you know, the great horror joke is you're watching a horror movie and you watch people do stupid things you would never do, right? right? Don't open that door. Don't go down that stairs. We know who's there. You don't see that in either of those shows. The situations are much more authentically probable, right? right? There's a Black Mirror episode called Playtest, which stars the guy from Lodge 49, Goldie Hongson, who is, he is the best at playing California stoners I've ever seen. (laughs) He's absolutely fantastic at it. And he brings this sort of goofy, gangly, sort of, oh, whatever, peace man kind of attitude to this terrifying haunted house episode that takes on virtual gaming, that takes on virtual gothic, that takes on multimedia millionaire game makers. He just sort of bumbles his way through this incredibly authentic haunted house in his brain that gets more and more and more terrifying. I won't tell you where it winds up because it's a really tightly, tightly wound episode, but there's the humor of this. You know what he's like? He's like Shaggy. He's like having actual Shaggy from Scooby-Doo stuck in a haunted house by himself. And part of the fun is watching him just sort of go, well, what do you know about that? And the other part is seeing what's really going to happen to this poor guy who doesn't deserve any of the things that are about to be foisted right. on him. But he never does the, oh, I shouldn't go in here. There's one point where he even stops and says, I know there's some really scary stuff behind that door. I know it. And he's talking to the person who's running the game for him. And she just says, well, you got to open it anyway. He's like, I know, but I'm just telling you that I know there's something bad here, <laughs> which is a really interesting moment. So yeah, humor and sort of being aware of yourself in these situations makes a big part of Black Mirror work too. So I think this probably brings us to the point where we always get to on this show, which is these technological thriller anthology series like Black Mirror, like Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. So what? (laughs) So what? Well, first of all, I, I think that we'll all agree that it is a wonderful time to be consuming and to be studying and to be teaching media because the stuff we're studying and teaching and sharing now is so much more fun and inventive and interesting. And there's so much of it to settle down with. I love teaching students episodes of black mirror, just like I love teaching students episodes of the twilight zone because they can lock into it so much better. They have so many things to say about the way these narratives work. So that's, so what, first of all, is just thank goodness that we're doing this now because there's just an embarrassment of riches to go around. And it allows us to teach about things like Rod Serling in early American radio and allows us to compare things like USS Callister and the Orville and the, the multitude and myriad Star Treks that are out there. And we haven't even mentioned Star Wars as a whole other, you know, a whole other kind of fandom and identity that locks in. So we, we can really see these frameworks of entertainment that are asking us to be more than just entertained. They're asking us to be agents of change, agents of ethical concern, agents of responsible or interesting or progressive use of media that has changed our lives. So that's one part of it. The other part of So What is, you know, Black Mirror focuses so much specifically on technology itself and how technology, whenever you invest in or bring your cyber identity in for some kind of an upgrade, a new phone, a new TV, a new computer, a new tablet, whatever it is, there's an actual trade-off, right? You're buying in to a new kind of convenience, faster, better, smarter, more options, more tools, but you're also putting more of yourself into that device and you're becoming less independent, less of a self-sustaining you and more of an integrated something else. And I think that's why Black Mirror has the title it has. I mean, we really are 
looking at the darkest parts of the things that we're giving up. Uh, and again, the episode that really nails that for me is Archangel, where the parent gives up a lot of the parenting power to this device that ultimately really, really brings massive tragedy to her and her child before it's over. So, so what is all of these stories are, are great warnings. They're thrill rides. Again, they're part of the circus. They're part of the freak show. They're part of the midnight spook show. All those things that make us, make us jump out of our seats. But then when we turn off the TV, when we turn off the computer, when we're lying in bed at night, the social and the cultural and the ethical and the ideological implications of what these shows do keep us worried on a whole other level. And I think that's both very entertaining and very useful, but also incredibly important. I'm going to back up to something you said at the beginning. Good, because I said too much. Not at, the beginning of the episode, <laughs> not, at the, not at the beginning of the episode, but at the beginning of your So What, and sort of build on it myself, which is... Please. These episodes... These kinds of series are an invitation for us to engage as agents of ethical discourse. I love it. That is, it's this opportunity. One of the things I spend the most time doing in my classes with students in media studies is trying to teach them how to not be passive consumers of media. How to yes. be engaged yes. and savvy yes. consumers of media, how to be media literate, how to understand the messaging that's embedded within media. And I think that Black Mirror and The Twilight Zone before it are series that force you into active consumption mm -hmm. because you yep. can't just watch an episode of Black Mirror and then go on with your day. You have to talk about it. It's, right. There's too much going on in the episode for you to just right. be like, yeah, that's a thing that I saw. You have to get it out of your body. And after you see some episodes, you're walking around looking at people who are naturally oblivious to the misery you're going right. through and you want to share it with them. You're like, wait, here, you have to, you have to watch this and then we can sit down and talk about it. Cause you're not going to be okay when it's over. You're going to want to talk <laughs> right. to somebody. You don't feel bad enough today. I'm going to give you this <laughs> thing right. to make you feel exactly worse. Right. You don't feel bad enough today, which is kind of why, you know, the masthead for the show is that little happy face cracked into the screen, right? right? That's exactly right. You don't feel bad enough today. It's, they are, it's a television series or it's two television series that do not allow you the space to not engage. And I think That's that right. that yes. is masterful media practice masterful media practice. and that's all the things that we've been told media should do right it should make you a more aware person it should make you a more responsible person it can still be irresponsible in the way it entertains you but ultimately you should walk away feeling somehow strengthened enlightened improved more aware of problems that you'll be facing and i think black mirror does that in so many interesting ways and of course right from that root from the twilight zone for sure well, I think this has been a very interesting episode. Oh, good. Well, thanks. I have certainly enjoyed myself talking about this. <laughs> I would love to hear what you, dear listener, think. So please join us on our new Instagram page. You can join us at Deconstruction Workers on Instagram and let us know what you think of the episode and let us know what you think of Please USS do. Callister and engage us in the conversation. Yes, and please, please, please forgive us for getting the name wrong so many times. We didn't. We got around. We got around <laughs> to it eventually. Yeah, yeah. And we will see you all in two weeks for our season finale of season three. So, for Dr. Dan Yesbik, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. You have been on the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for joining me this week, Dan. Uh, it was a great, great pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you all soon. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. 
As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers Podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.